You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. These two, 17 through 26. Ecclesiastes 2. Verse 17 through 26. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This, too, is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is meaningless. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness, but to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Mary. I really do love to hear from you all and how the message of this book is impacting you and maybe you're finding places of integration of it in your own life. Um, I recently talked to a mom who said that she knows her kids are listening to the messages on Sunday, but not necessarily in a way that she appreciates. Um, The other day she said she reminded her son that he needed to do his chores and his homework before he went outside to play And the son responded, what does it matter, mom? It's all Hebel. (laughs) And I just thought, yes, that kid gets it, right? I mean, he still has to do his chores and he still has to do his homework, but he gets it. And kid, I just want you to know, if you're out there today, you are going to love this message, this one today. We have been on a journey with Kohelet to discover the meaning of life. He is asking a very important question that every one of you should ask. What does it mean to live a good life as a human? Where can we find meaning in this broken and befuddling world that we live in? And he's out to experiment and find out. He first tried out wisdom. Maybe if I understand the way the world works, then maybe it can be less painful, but no, that didn't work. Then last week we saw he tried out pleasure. Maybe life is about enjoying life and having a good time. But in the end, he discovered that was meaningless. It was just a chasing after the wind. And so today, um, in chapter 2, verses 17 through 26, we see him to turn to something that I think many of us ultimately seek to find a lot of meaning and purpose in, and that is our 
our work, and I mean that in the broadest of terms. I don't mean just your career. I mean all the ways that we seek to contribute to the world. Now, unlike pleasure, um, work, I think, is a much better candidate for ultimate meaning in life because pleasure, especially the way Kohelet pursued it, is really only available to the rare privileged. But work is something that all of us do, right? All of us. Young, you, you, young people here, as soon as you start in kindergarten, right? You got to work. And even after you retire, you got to work, right? Young and old and rich and poor and employed and unemployed, whether it's in our offices, whether it's out in the work site, whether it's uh, in our homes, whether it's in the church, whether it's in a nonprofit, whether it's on the yard. I mean, all we spend so much of our lives working and so much of the way that we think about our identity is bound up in work. We ask these poor little children, what are you going to be when you grow up? We, uh, it's how we introduce ourselves. It's how we ask what to learn about each other, right? Um, it's where you meet a lot of your friends. It's what you talk about at parties. It's ultimately what directs much of the course of our lives. Estimates are we spend up to 80,000 hours or more in our work. So you would think that something that is that significant, that we spend that portion of our time giving to, could be a source of great meaning in our lives. Is it? Can work be a source of meaning in a world of Hebel? Well, let's find out. First, the futility of work. Does work deliver on the meaning that it promises? Well, in true Kohelet fashion, he starts with his very negative conclusion in verse 17. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Goodness, man, somebody give this guy a hug. Right? I mean, really, is it that bad? I mean, he, had to, he just spent the first, I mean, if you look back in early chapter two, he spent the whole of early chapter two talking about his amazing career and how he built all these projects and all these houses. And he did all this amazing work in building parks and forests and all these things. I mean, built amassed wealth. From any outsider's perspective, this guy looks like a pretty successful working man. I mean, this is a very successful career. So why is he so negative about it? What's so bad about work? Well, in this section, um, he attacks the very things where we tend to find our most significant meaning in work. First, that work is satisfying, and second, that work is how we make a contribution to the world. So first, we all want work that is personally satisfying, right? We all want that. Everybody wants that. And you, re- and you, you go pick up a book about work, and what it'll say? It'll say, find your passion. And if you can find, uh, you know, a career that really fits who you are and aligns with your passions, your abilities, then you won't even feel like you're going to work. Then you'll just be doing what you love. And Koala is like, that's total hogwash. He says, we live in a cursed world. That even if you're doing what you love, even if you're doing what you're called to do, there are so many things about work that are just terrible. So verse 22 What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their grief, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. First, he just says work is painful, right? He's talking about just like the sheer pain of continual exertion in our work. It just wears you down. It wears down your body. It wears down your mind. Work, you know, the daily grind, the rat race. Some of you young parents, like the care of your families. I mean, it just takes all that you have. It's just physically exhausting and draining to the body and the mind and the soul, right? And that's just when work is going well. 
Because then he says, it's not only full of pain, but full of grief. It's impossible, it's impossible to do a lifetime of work without facing a whole lot of disappointments. Failure, displacement, downturns, losing a job, getting overlooked for a job, not getting a promotion, mind-numbing days and jobs you don't really like, pouring your heart into a project and nobody actually cares, right? A life of work for some of us can be disappointment after disappointment and rejection after rejection. And so ultimately what this leads to is not just grief, he says, but worry that even at nights their minds do not rest. I mean, has this happened to you? You're so exhausted and you finally lay down at night and you put your head in the pillow and you're still, and then your mind just starts racing because you can't stop thinking about all the things that you haven't done and the things that could go wrong and the problems you haven't solved and the things still on your to-do list. A recent survey from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine found now that nearly 90% of Americans report losing sleep at night because of worry about money or work concerns or career. And so Kohelet is saying, yeah, go for it. Find a job that meets your passions. But in the end, no matter how partially satisfying your work might be, you cannot escape this, that no matter what, your work will brutalize you. There was a really interesting documentary um, that came out on Netflix last year on work. It's actually based on the very famous historical survey of work by historian Suds Terkel. Um, in that book, this is what Terkel says. This is a massive survey of American workers. Work is about violence to the spirit as well as to the body. It is about ulcers as well as accidents, about nervous breakdowns and kicking the dog. It is, it is above all about daily humiliations. To survive the day is triumph enough for the walking wounded among the great majority of us. Okay. That's what I'm telling you, Kohelet says. It's all grief and toil. Now, you might say, okay, yeah, I get it. Work is hard, but it's still meaningful because it's how I make a contribution in the world. It's how I make my mark. It's how I leave a legacy, right? Work is hard, but through it, I make a contribution to life. Well, not so fast, Kohelet says. First of all, you think you're leaving a legacy with your work? Not really. Because you spend your whole life working for something, building a business, or amassing wealth, or creating a strong career, or creating a strong family, trying to leave some kind of legacy. And then what happens? Death happens. And then what happens to whatever you've accomplished next? Well, the problem, trouble is you don't know. You don't know. That's his point. Verse 18, I hated all the things I told for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or a fool. Yet they will have total control over all the fruit of my toil in which I have poured my effort in under the sun. He says, you work really hard and then you die and someone else gets all the benefit. And you don't know whether the people who come after you will handle what you've done wisely or not. Inheritance can be squandered. Legacies can be lost. You have no guarantee. You have no control of whether it will be handled responsibly or not. And given the number of fools in the world, chances are it'll end in the wrong hands. Well, you say that may be true, but my memory will endure. No, not really. We've, we've already covered that ground, right? It doesn't matter in the end if you've left a great legacy or not or whether you live wisely or foolishly because even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. <laughs> and in the end, you know, time, time will dissolve your memory just as much as the earth will dissolve your remains. That's what he says. A friend of mine told me about um, riding in an elevator with a bunch of top young executives in a powerful company in New York 
And they were, they were all these VPs and young executives, and they were riding up an elevator in this tall, important corporate office building in New York. And one of the young executives said, <laughs> man, if this elevator crashed, this, build, this company would be in deep trouble. And this older gentleman in the back said, if this elevator crashed, we'd all be replaced in a month. <laughs> See, I mean, we, 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 we want to feel like we're so important. We want to feel like that we're making this big impact in the world, but we're not. Raise your hand if you've heard of Emil Jennings. One of you. First winner of the best actor, the Oscars. Raise your hand if you've heard of Jean-Henri Dunant. First winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. Ernest Poole, first winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. I mean, these people were like the biggest names of their day making massive impact on the world. Dynasties, legacies, right? You don't even know their names. John Keats, the British poet, this is what is on his gravestone, if you go see it in England. Here lies one whose name is written in water. Have you ever tried to write your name in water? What happens if you take your pen out after writing your name in water? It's like you were never even there. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, there's, my name is written in water. You work so hard, but in the end, you make no mark on the world. Here's, here's an interesting illustration. This is a book. It's called Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible. A guy named James Strong wrote this, put this together about 100 years ago. Y'all, this is his entire life's work. This had never been done before. He spent 80,000 hours, that's his entire, he spent his entire career analyzing, identifying, collating, and annotating every single word in the Bible so that people of his time could look up and find any verse that they wanted. This was a breakthrough. This is his life's work. Now a 10-year-old can do this with a laptop in five minutes. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a doorstop. His name is written in water. So we don't want to believe this. Uh, we want to believe that we're making a mark. The world is different because of us. But what's more likely true can be summed up in the words of Leonard Wolf, husband of Virginia Wolf, British political theorist, author of over 20 books. He said, I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill during the past 10 years would be exactly the same as it is if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. I have therefore rather to make the ignominious confession that I must have in a long life ground through between 150 and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. So this is a terrible problem of our work. We invest so much of our lives in it. We spend so much of our lives doing it. We find our meaning and identity in it. We wanna use it to give ourselves a permanent lasting name, but the undersun reality is, is that we spend our whole lives working to gain something that we can never keep. And to ask the question that Leo Tolstoy asks, what will come of my life? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not finally destroy? Okay, ready to pray and go home. No, we don't have to because look, before you get too depressed, let's look at verses 24 to 26 because here for the first time in the book, Kohelet says something positive. Yay! <laughs> 
<laughs> Almost without warning, Kohelet switches gears and makes this bold statement about the goodness in life of work, seeing it as a gift. Look at verses 24. He said, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? This is the first of seven places where he says something positive with increasing elaboration about the goodness of life and the goodness of the world. And it's not because he doesn't believe the earlier things. We know he believes them deeply. He believes that the world is hebel. He believes in the futility and ambiguity of the life we live in. And yet, as a good Israelite, he cannot get away from the deep foundational truths that he has learned from the time he was a young boy that God is good and therefore life at root is good because God has given it to us as a gift. And not only is life good, but that means what is good? Work is good. And if you go back and read in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, you'll see that long before Genesis 3, what is God doing? He's working. He's creating. He's building. He's tending. He's cultivating. And then he creates Adam and Eve, and he calls them to work alongside him, to labor and cultivate and create, right? And so work is not a necessary evil. Work is not a punishment for sin, but work is something we were made for. It's something embedded in our humanity. It does, it is a place that we can ultimately find some degree of purpose and meaning in because we reflect God when we work. We mirror the God who works on our behalf. And so what this means is that no matter what you're doing this time tomorrow, and all of you will be doing all kinds of different things this time tomorrow, it means that that matters. Think about that. It matters. Your work has dignity. It, all of it, no matter how ordinary, is meaningful, right? An artist's way with color, an author's way with words, an architect's way with design, a mechanic's way with machines, a lawyer's way with you know, laws, an analytics way with numbers, a teacher's ability to make the complex simple, a parent's way with life and fostering it, a farmer's capacity to grow, all of these things mirror the God who made us who parents and who grows and who cultivates and creates and invests and repairs and serves, right? So when we work, Kohelet says, the best thing we can do is enjoy these simple gifts of receiving whatever it is that God has given us to do in the world and to know that this is part of what it means to labor with God and to experience the goodness of God in that. So where does that leave us? It leaves us uh, with a little bit of a paradox and you might wonder, are we supposed to ignore uh, verses 17 through 23 and just focus on verses 24 and 26? Or does the negative cancel out the positive or vice versa? Well, the wisdom of this passage is, is that both are true. Did y'all, any of y'all seen this old New Yorker cartoon? Um, I know you can't read it, so I'll read it to you, but that's supposed to be Charles Dickens sitting there with his editor. And the editor is trying to get him to change the opening line of his book, The Tale of Two Cities. He says, make up your mind, Mr. Dickens. It's either the best of time or the worst of time. It just can't be both. Well, the teacher would say, actually, it can be because it is both, right? This is the world that we live in. We live in a Genesis 1 and 2 world, and we live in a Genesis 3 world. We live in a world of total and beautiful goodness, and we live in a, a world of, of hor horrible terror and, and evil. We, li we live in a, a world that is both beautiful and terrible, sacred and tragic. Life is both because life is Hebel. And it's the same with our work. So what this means is, this is what we're called to do every day. You know, we, at the one hand, receive the goodness of our work and realize that this is a good gift of God. Paul says in Colossians 3, 
Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, because it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Whatever you're doing tomorrow, whether it's cultivating your garden or changing a diaper or changing a tire, uh, whether it's sitting in a meeting or whether it's crunching numbers or whatever it may be doing, you know that the Lord has given this for you to do and therefore it, is, it matters. It's beautiful. It's important. It's partnering with God. And it's part of the reason why God put you here, right? It's good. But at the same time, we know that work is deeply broken. Some of you I know hate your jobs and you wish you were doing something different. And some of you are unable to work because of age or injury or frustrating circumstances. Some of us overwork, drawing too much identity from it. All of us experience discouragement and frustration in our work. It feels sometimes pointless and meaningless and futile. We become discouraged and overwhelmed. We feel like we can never get done what we want to. We feel exhausted to the bone. And in the end, we have no control over the outcomes of our labor. And so living a wise life, I think Kohala is saying, living a wise life means accepting that both of these things are true at the same time. And that part of being content is learning to live within the paradox. That doesn't mean that there are not good reasons sometimes to find a different job. It just simply means this, that the more that we accept this paradox, that our work is both very good and very hard, that it can be wonderfully fulfilling and terribly crushing, that the more we are able to live in the tension of that, the more you are able to relinquish control of your life and your work to God. To stop this endless, fruitless search for this perfectly satisfying life and job. It's not coming, y'all. It's not coming. And so instead of wishing our life were different or our work were different, we can begin to receive our lives and our work as it actually is, a gift of God that is also broken. And we can invite God into the joy and the pain of our labor every single day. But let us push beyond this just here as we close. Because ultimately, as we have said every week, Ecclesiastes is true, but thank God it's not the whole truth because it points to the bigger story of the gospel. And I just wanna end looking at how the gospel ultimately answers the questions about work that are raised in this book. And I just wanna mention two quick things. First, the gospel ultimately does give us an identity uh, beyond our work. There's, there's an interesting story. I'm just gonna move this book so I don't trip over it. Um, there's an interesting story in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus is sending out his 72 disciples and he sends them out two by two to go work in his name. And they come running back and they say, Jesus, this was so amazing. We did so much amazing work. We cast out demons. We healed people. We proclaimed the kingdom of God. We made such a big impact on the world. And Jesus is like, that's great, guys. Yeah, great. But then he says something really interesting to them. He says, do not rejoice that the demons submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So what's he saying? He's saying, it's great that you had a good day at work. Great. But don't put your identity in that. Don't put too much meaning in that. Because if you do, like if you have a good day, you'll feel great. But what about if you have a bad day? And what about if your life falls apart? And what about if everything goes wrong? So don't put your ultimate joy and meaning in your work. Here's your joy that you belong to the Lord of all. That your names are written in heaven. That you have an identity and a purpose and a belonging that is so much bigger and deeper than your work. That's what Jesus says we find our meaning in. I, I discovered this kind of the hard way when I almost burned out completely uh, a couple years ago. And this session, the elders knew that I was, 
And so they let me take some time off. I took like a little sabbatical. And um, it wasn't until I stopped working and, and I, I realized I didn't know who I was anymore and that I had forgotten who I was and that I had lost my true self and that I wasn't primarily a pastor and a leader and a preacher and a parent and a husband and that I was not what I do and I am not what I have and I am not what others think of me and I am not the sum total of my worst failures and I am not the sum total of my best performances, that I am not any of those things, that who I am at core is a person who is in Jesus Christ. But I am one with Christ through the power of the Spirit, a son of God the Father. And this is the truest self that I have. And that is a self that is deeper than anything else. And it's only when you have a self that is deeper than anything else in your life, your work, your performance, your failures, your, the approval of others, it's only when you have an identity that is deeper than all of those things will you be able to have a relationship with your work that is healthy so that you can actually go through your work and have really good days and not have it go to your head or have really bad days and not let it cut you to the bone, or have really long seasons of disappointment and futility and not let it ground you to the ground. It's only when you have an identity beyond your work that you're able to have a healthy relationship with your work and do it under God. Does that make sense? That's the first thing the gospel gives us. But the second thing is kind of surprising is that the gospel gives us hope for our work, right? In his famous chapter about the resurrection, Paul points out how the resurrection of Jesus changes our relationship even to our work. He says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, your work is meaningless. Everything Kohelet says, absolutely true. But thank God for this. Jesus has risen from the dead. And therefore, if you know him, if you trust in him, if you belong in him, you will also be risen from the dead. And not just you, all of creation, the creation, the Hebel world that we live in also will be raised from the dead. And do you know what that means? It means nothing you do is in vain. Paul says this in verse 50, he says, 58, he says, therefore, because of the resurrection, my beloved, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. This is almost too mysterious to describe that somehow in the resurrection of Jesus, your labor, and I mean everything. I don't mean your church work. I mean everything. I mean the projects you do at work tomorrow. I mean the trees that you plant. I mean the babies that you raise, that somehow all of the work, even as frustrating as it is, bound up in Jesus Christ, done for his glory, will be swept up and incorporated in the new creation. The only way I know how to describe this is by telling you a story here at the end. This is a story written by uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. So once there was an artist named Niggle, and Niggle was a very gifted artist. And he had in his mind a picture of a beautiful tree flanked by a glorious landscape. And so he began to paint the picture. But the problem was is that Niggle was a niggler. He was a perfectionist. He couldn't get it right. And so every day he struggled and every day he strived and every day he tried to paint. But in the end, the only thing that he got done was one single leaf. And then he died. And the leaf was very good. And so they put it in a museum in the little town. And people, a couple people came and looked at it, but not really anybody. And then everybody forgot about it. And then the name of Niggle was completely forgotten from the face of the earth. But the story continues. Because far beyond death, 
Nigel is one day riding his bicycle through the new creation. And he's riding it across a green landscape. And he suddenly is looking around and he says, this just, this just seems somehow so familiar to me. This hill is rising just where I thought it would. And this other crest is going down just like I imagined it would. And then suddenly there was a shadow and he looked up and he fell off his bicycle because there before him was the tree, his tree. And this is, this is what Tolkien then says. He says, before him stood the tree, finished. Its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind in a way that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and yet had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree and slowly he lifted his arms and he opened them wide and he said, it's a gift. It's a gift. Friends, I... I cry whenever I read that story because we're all niggle, right? We all want to make a difference. We all want to be permanent. We all want to do something that will last. We all want a name that we remembered. We, nobody wants to be forgotten. And yet our labor is so deeply discouraging and futile and we so rarely get done what we want to get done. And even the things that we do get done often feel like they're crumbling through our fingers. And so much of what we do, whether it's in work or career or parenting, feels like it is just like a sandcastle washing away in the sea. But here's the good news that Jesus Christ is risen. And because he is risen, a new creation is coming. And what that means is this, that every single good endeavor that you do, every little tiny work of act of love, both seen and unseen, even the smallest little leaf that you create done in union with Jesus and for God's glory, all of it matters forever. And one day you will see the tree, the fruit of all of your labor. And it will be a gift, not accomplished by you, but fulfilled, fully finished by God as a gift of grace. And this is ultimately what we hope in not ourselves, but Jesus Christ who is risen. And because of him, indeed, we can say our labor is not in vain. Thanks be to God for that. Let's pray together. Maybe just think about your work. Think about what you'll be doing this time tomorrow. Think about the things you like about it. Think about the things you hate about it. Think about the days that you feel so fulfilled and think about the days when you feel like you're just absolutely shattered. Would you take all of that now? The good and the bad, the glory and the shame, the fulfillment and the futility. And would you just offer up to God? And would you say, Lord Jesus, would you come into my life as it is? I offer myself and my work up to you. Would you take it as a gift for you? Would you receive it? Would you come alongside me? Always be with me. Our Father, we are so grateful that you are a working God and that you invite us into your labor and we offer our work up to you. I pray for those today who are happy in their work, would you give them a deep sense that they are doing their work unto you and not for themselves? 
whether they are parents, whether they are in the middle of their careers, or whether they are retired, whether they are unemployed or employed, or whether they are children or the aged. We pray that we would do all of our work unto you, partnering with you in the renewal of all things. Lord, for those who are discouraged in their work, for the unemployed and the underemployed, for those looking for jobs who keep hitting into walls, for those who are laboring on in work that they hate but they feel like they cannot leave, God, would you give deep encouragement to these laborers, that they would know that you are with them every day in the daily grind, and that even the work that they do on bad days is done for your glory and it matters. Would you give them a deep assurance that you are with them and that you will provide? And God, for the sorrowful, for those who are looking into their past and all they see is shattered dreams, for those who have never gotten to do what they wanted to do and never will get to do it, for those who experience deep loss when they think about work, for those who sought to build and create and yet who have encountered only sorrow and futility and even terrible loss, such as our dear friends Elizabeth and Will who encountered such loss in helping to build a family. God, we pray for mercy on the sorrowful and that you would come alongside us in our grief, give us great hope. And may we hold on to the hope that our labor is never in vain and one day we will see the full tree, the full fruit of our labor. We offer all of this up to you in the name of Jesus, the one who came and worked for us, who worked on our behalf and has risen from the dead. We trust in him and him alone. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna...